Hello and welcome back to Podcasting is Praxis. I'm James, my pronouns are they and them. I'm Jamie, my pronouns are he and him. Uh, I'm Rob, mine are he and him. And I'm Alistair, my pronouns are also he and him. And joining us tonight is returning friend of the pod on his second appearance, Josh Sawyer, uh, studio director at Obsidian and game director and narrative director on the recently released Pentiment. Hello, Josh. Hello, thank you for having me. And for the record, I use masculine pronouns. Awesome. Um, so no David tonight. Uh, David is recovering from New Year celebrations um, and will be joining us, I think, next week. Um, but tonight, um, a bit of a special episode, we've been thinking for a while about art and video games and specifically um, about their portrayal of history, which ended up being quite good because we recently played through uh, Josh's most recent uh, game, Pentiment, which has a lot to say on the subject. So we thought we'd invite Josh on to, to talk about the lens of history and how it's reproduced through art and through video games in particular. Um, so this episode is going to sort of generally focus on Pentiment, but more broadly as a means to talk about these larger questions, which we'll be getting into as the episode goes on. And I say this uh, just to reassure listeners, um, we will talk about spoilers about Pentiment, but we'll do it towards the end and we will give a, a clear kind of jumping off point. In particular, Jamie hasn't finished it yet, so he'll be, you know, stepping aside and that'll be a good opportunity for any of our listeners who've not finished the game to do so as well. Yeah. Um, you can just leave. Yeah. Hypocrites <laughs> is always allowed. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, just to kind of to get us going, there's obviously a lot to cover here. Um, and just at the outset... Uh, we'd like to encourage our listeners to actually play Pentiment. Um, I finished it last night, as I said, and it's a very, very good game. It's a very unique game. I don't think there's anything quite like it, at least in like mainstream gaming um, in the past few years. If you like games that are thoughtful, in the sense that they require you to think, they inspire you to think, and also they've got a lot of thought put into them. And if you like games which are paced, not slow, but that they're deliberate and they want you to take your time and really immerse yourself in them, then... Pentiment is a hard recommend for me, a 10 out of 10. Um, and, it's also got some know, really, really enjoyable characters, which... Uh... It, it, it does. The writing is quite excellent in places. I really, really enjoyed it. So we're going to we're gonna get into it, um, not too effusively. Like, you know, it's, it, it's interesting primarily to me for what it does and for the comment it makes, um, which we'll get into. Um, but yeah, like I said, we'll leave spoilers towards the end. So we're kind of doing this. We, we figured, you know, obviously... You know, we got you here, Josh. You worked very hard on this, and it's it's quite an achievement. So I thought, just to kind of to start us off, um, I'd like to ask a question. Um, when did work on Pentiment start, and was it in response to anything in particular? Um, I guess real work on Pentiment probably started. I would say maybe twenty nineteen is really hmm. when we started rolling on it. Um, I think I had some really vague ideas of a game kind of like this in 2018. Um, and I didn't really think it was a thing that we could do outside of crowdfunding. And I wasn't even sure if that would be a, a realistic route. Mm. But then when we were, when Obsidian, I should say, was um, acquired by Microsoft because they have Game Pass mm -hmm. and they had a stated desire to have a, a wide range of games, I thought, hey, why not propose a small game uh, that is very, <laughs> very niche and uh, rely somewhat cynically on their desire to appear magnanimous and <laughs> let me do it. Um, so that's kind of um, my mentality going into it was I probably have one chance to make 
whatever I want as long as I don't ask for too much money. So I'm going to do it right now. And um, that's what I did. And then um, it was, in terms of a response in my own life, um, I worked on Dead Fire, mm. and that was the sequel to Pillars of Eternity. And I have a, I have a very sort of like mixed, I have very mixed feelings about Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2 because they could not have been made without crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the crowdfunding leaned very heavily into the idea of a spiritual successor. Um, yeah. But that being said, because role-playing games are pretty conservative as a genre and because we specifically pitched it as a throwback, um, I felt very constrained in how I could approach it. And uh, I feel like I did have to compromise a lot to try to make everybody happy, which is usually not a good way to go about things. Mm. Um, and even though the first game was both critically, critically successful and commercially successful, the second game was critically successful, but it was not commercially successful. And it was not, I mean, in the long run it was, but in the first year it was a big failure. Like, we wound up spending more money than we expected to, and it sold very poorly. Um, and there were a lot of theories about why, and everyone's an expert on it. Um, <laughs> but it was very personally upsetting to me. And uh, also, when Deadfire, like m- three months before Deadfire shipped, uh, I was go- I started going through a breakup. That was really rough, and it didn't finish until after the game shipped. And it left me feeling very... Um, very unhappy and dissatisfied. Uh, so I was like, I don't even know what I want, I want to direct anymore. I, or I, like I what still, makes... I still really enjoyed too. Like I really enjoyed it, and I still blame you for like making me cho- making me choose between the four factions because I wanted them all to win <laughs> and lose at the same time. Thank you. And the th- the thing is, it's weird because, like I said, I feel like um, you know, obviously there were some criticisms that I don't think are unfair of the plot, which is largely my responsibility, um, and other things about the game, like the ship-to-ship combat did not work out. Um, I take less responsibility for that, and I've gone over that before, (laughs) but like, um, I wanted to cut the entire system a long time ago. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, so there are criticisms that I thought were reasonable about it, but at the same time, I thought it was a good game, and that it was, in most ways, much better than the first game. And so the fact that it sold very poorly was really frustrating. And uh, I was kind of at a loss for like, should I make games like this anymore? Should I go back to some other type of game? Um, Am I like, should I go back to making like a first person open world game? Is that even possible anymore? Like what's going on? Um, And yeah, it wasn't until Microsoft was about to acquire us that I was like, I'm gonna try to make a really small game with a really small team uh, with this very specific historical focus. And I think I can do it for an amount of money that no one will care about. So even if it (laughs) basically like, I was like, even if it completely flops, like who cares? Um, uh, Certainly not my, well, I I don't think Microsoft would care um, just because the budget. (laughs) And and that's kind of how I went into it was just saying, I'm gonna make this very specifically the way that I want to make it with my team. Obviously you have to work with your teammates. You can't just Mm -hmm. do whatever you want. 
um, but without really worrying about who the audience was or like making some imaginary group of people happy. Mm. Uh, it was just done out of passion for the subject matter and the art style and the storytelling and having the mentality that there is a group of people out here who will want to play it. And mm. maybe that group is very, very small, but I don't care. Well, from, from the sound, we, we have the same approach to our podcast, but your game is much more <laughs> successful. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I was going to say, Josh, how much, how much of the game uh, would you say did come from your genuine desire to just flee to the Alps? In Bavaria, <laughs> I yeah. mean, I, uh, I mean, I, I have a spare I, room I if you want to like come hang out in Zurich for a while. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice! No, but I, I, I do, I do love the Alps. I do love Bavaria. Um, you know, I've talked about this before, um, but my grandmother was born in Bavaria. Most of my family has either German or Austrian sort of roots, and I studied German language in college and history and music, and um, so yeah, I have a, I have an interest in it. And um, I thought it would be a beautiful setting. And I think the history is interesting. And it's, it's a pivotal sort of, I mean, you could say any, any period in, in history is, is pivotal, depending on how you look at it. But mm. um, the early 16th century, the Reformation, the German mm. Peasants' War, uh, I do think those are, are noteworthy among noteworthy things. And uh, most people don't really know anything about it. So, um, and they interest me. And so I just thought... Um, Put it in a beautiful setting, get some kind of name of the rose vibes, but not really get a lot of Renaissance, uh, you know, Northern Renaissance art and uh, mm -hmm. deal with some things in history that I think are interesting to me that I hope other people will find interesting. I do That's find it really interesting that there's like a sort of a collective mind meld around like the time of the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War, the Peasants' Wars, as, as you were talking about, like that there are like several projects. I know uh, Eleanor Janiga, friend of the pod, is did a multi-series on it. I know the guys that one of Matt Chrisman from Chapo is doing like a 10 podcast episode about the, the, the Thirty Years' War. It's like everybody is sort of figured out that the 30 years war is super interesting and they've all done it at the same time <laughs> and I, I did it happen independently or do you guys just get together in a room and why are we not invited in that room no it's, 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 it's fan dm yeah it's <laughs> well, cultural illuminati and real okay thanks Rob. <laughs> well and the, and the thing is i actually because i knew i knew i wanted to focus on the first half of the 16th century the 30 years war is like i actually don't really know that much about it um mm. but it was really it was really that um those like I also know more about the peasant uprisings in the preceding centuries and how those kind of built toward the German peasant war in 1525 and how that interacted with the reformation mm -hmm. and how at the one, at the one time people were like blaming Luther for it. And Luther was saying, no, actually the peasants are all scumbags. Like I never even liked those guys. And the peasants <laughs> were like, yeah, well we're not inspired by you these are issues that we've had for literally centuries. Like, where do you get off thinking like, like, yeah, we're not even riding your dick. Like, this is not <laughs> like, this has nothing to do with you. Like, don't act stuck up, like get off of it. Um, so I, I just thought those interactions were very interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. That was just my, my approach to it. No, that's, that's all really cool. And it's, it's really kind of interesting to hear like the personal connection 
to the area that's kind of covered? Because one of the questions I was going to ask was what attracts you to that specific place and period of history? But I think you've kind of covered that pretty comprehensively. So if we kind of, if we step I just back wanna, this, um Before we go, go on, on, I just want to say what you were saying there about like, um, you know, obviously it's it's you and the team have put it together, but it, it's you've done it for yourselves rather than like specifically to a, a sort of preset audience's wishes or whatever. Um, yeah. It it really obviously I, I I've I've played seven hours and I've only just like there's only just been a murder I've just been soaking <laughs> the atmosphere in like um, <laughs> it really reminds me of um, Return of the Obra Dinn mm-hmm. in that same it's it, it, it's set out to do a thing and it's doing it its way and you can either get on board or not. You know, it's not yeah. like um, it's not because I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the Pillars of Eternity games, but if if there was any complaints I had about them, it's that they were a little bit too much like Baldur's Gate. Um, yeah. I'd I'd like obviously much have prefer, preferred to see what you would have done without like as you were saying that sort of uh, the 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 weight of history on on top of that there where it was expected to be a specific thing. Um, yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm well, really I'm really enjoying Pentiment so far. Thank you. Well, that way of history comment is quite topical, actually, because that's something the game kind of tackles, I think. So to kind of to take us from the kind of specifics, because we're going to we're going to talk about Pentiment and, and like the, the particular blow by blows of the plot and kind of how they expand into the broader theme towards the end. But like just as a kind of to ease us in, what were the kind of big ideas that you wanted to explore in Pentiment? Because obviously there's a lot going on and you know I'm not expecting this to cover everything. But yeah. like, you know, what, what was the stuff that you kind of looked at and went, I really want to talk about this or I want to meditate on this? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of stuff. There's a, a lot of things about, um, I would say, generally art and history as a thing that you you live through and you're active in, <laughs> um, rather than a thing that sort of happened in the past that you receive. Um, you know, people are participants in history, mm. and in the way that they, and especially in like a small town where literacy is low, like you're you're transmitting a lot of things through mouth. Um, Mm -hmm. you see things in Pentiment that get warped just by Andreas being gone for seven years and you come back and you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, this is not the way that things happened. I was here. Um, And uh, also the role of an artist in, or the role of a writer, if you want, like basically the role of chroniclers in Mm -hmm. portraying things either as they are, or as they see them. And that that is not a neutral act. um, And that it's, it's, um, either willful denial or just being naive to think that you can portray things neutrally. Um, And uh, also saying a lot about relationships between people in a community, whether those are are literal blood familial relationships or friendships um, and the sort of sympathy and empathy that goes on between people living Mm -hmm. in in close quarters for a long time um, in a way that maybe we, you know, not to get too nostalgic or trad here, but like, you know, maybe we, we are kind of alienated from living physically in the way that we do right now and communicating in the way that we do. Um, I mean, this is a full alienation under capitalism is real and happens kind of podcast, so you're on friendly territory. Yeah. Okay, great. We're not, we're not going to be being trapped. But uh, yeah, and it was, um, you know, just, and, and also I, I wanted to kind of explore things that I, I think are not usually explored in depth. Um, there's a lot of preconceptions that people people think a lot of things about history that mm. are bullshit or, you know, there's no evidence to support 
Um, you know, history is very fragile yeah. and it, it's never really a monolith. But, you know, we can we can say, you know, it is it is sort of factual to say, hey, um, 16th century European society, broadly speaking, disapproved of homosexuality and also could punish severely people for engaging in homosexual acts. Mm. But also we can say uh, most people ignored that like, or in a close community, people just, it was very much a don't ask, don't tell sort of circumstance. And there's lots of evidence to support this. Also, the idea of homosexuality was not a thing that existed mm. in people's minds. Um, relationships between women were like not even conceivable to some people. Like there's yes. a point where Andreas is talking to Florian during the autopsy and this is not really a spoiler, but he, um, there's some discussion of sex in the Abbey and there are nuns on one side and, and men on the other. And yep. Andreas can ask, does this happen between the brothers and the sisters? Or he can ask, does this happen between the brothers? Yep. The option to ask, does it happen between the sisters? Doesn't appear specifically because it's inconceivable to Andreas. Like yep. he doesn't really understand sexuality in that way because most people didn't understand sexuality in that way. I really enjoyed how the game played with the preconceptions and assumptions that the protagonists and those around them had, um, which is particularly relevant to the central plot in places, but we'll we'll align that for now. Um, yeah. But that's kind of interesting because, so one of the things I was thinking as I was playing through this, and this wasn't the overriding thought, but it was in the back of my mind, um, is that it reminds me by what it doesn't do and what it does well. It kind of read to me a little bit like a, a countertext to some of the discourse that emerged around, I think it was like 2018, there was that game Kingdom Come Deliverance, which mm -hmm. made this whole big thing about um, how it was very authentic to the history period, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Um, but there was a certain cachet, obviously, of the, the public um, with regressive and, shall we say, uh, <laughs> trad deus vault kind of, uh, you yeah. know, uh, politics who seized on it and who were, you know, you were very critical of essentially what what we would kind of blithely describe as multiculturalism but basically just like historical representation of mm -hmm. people who are non-white and so it's kind of interesting to me like when I, when I was you know playing through it was very interesting how much the game it didn't go out this way to do it but it, it was inclusive of the kind of things that these people criticized and I did wonder because I you know I got I got to the end and I saw the bibliography in the credits, which was kind of cool. Uh, very comprehensive bibliography. And I wondered, like, what was the reason for including this? And was it partially a kind of preemptive, like, fuck off and do your homework to the sort of, you know, statue-loving To the general player. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I did wonder if, it, if there was, like, a, an element of that in it. Um, no, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't intended as a... It wasn't intended as a a snobbish thing, although, I mean, I'll repudiate those people all day long, mm -hmm. but like, it wasn't, um, it wasn't intended in that way. It was, I, I went to school for history. <laughs> like that's so, what I got yeah. my degree in. And, um, I, the thing is like, I, back in the nineties, I, I played a game called Darklands, which I've talked about a bunch and mm -hmm. it's a really fantastic game. And Arnold Hendrick, who sadly died a few years ago, but he was uh, one of the, he was the lead designer on the game and he had a degree, I believe in military history mm -hmm. and he's a historian and he included a bibliography, which used to be more common when we had game manuals. Um, <laughs> but he included uh... a bibliography and I remember going through it and there's a lot of really cool reference and there's things that I used for this game that were in his bibliography. That's and awesome. um, 
I I just thought like this is a game that got me interested in history in part, and I was glad that I could go to the bibliography. Excuse me. Even something like even though it's not strictly a bibliography, but a people will talk about Gary Gygax in D and D. In first edition, he included I think it's Appendix N, um, mm-hmm. which is all of the things that inspired him, um, in terms of fiction or history in making D&D. And when you go back and look at those, if you actually read through that stuff, you can see the roots and like why D&D is such a weird amalgamation of semi-historical and fantasy things. Um, And so I just thought, why not? I'm like, I'm doing the work. Why not let people see where I got this stuff from? And so if people are like, was this really how midwives did things? Well, this is where I looked and this is what I found. Is this really how people would have dressed on a hunt? Well, here's a 1910 text that I referenced. If, if you want to look at that, and if you think I got it wrong, or if there's some other text, like you can refer me to that, that's great. Um, make your own pentamen. Make your own pentamen. <laughs> and so so it, it, it wasn't really like, no, it wasn't a snub. It was just, this is, this is the work that I've done. And if you want to check it or do your own, then here's what we did. Uh, there's no reason to hide it. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of my mentality behind it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's great, and like I, I love the fact that you you got direct inspiration from a game with its own kind of little bibliography, and that's directly translated into it. I just it, it almost perfectly reflects a lot of the themes that are in Pentiment about the transmission across time through art of like Absolutely. cultural knowledge and cultural artifacts. That's fantastic. I really love that. So so actually. On the research itself, um, you know, obviously Pentiment takes pains to give a, a broadly accurate representation of time and place, like within the bounds of being comprehensible to modern sensibilities. So I, I, this is maybe a bit of a naive question, and you might have kind of already answered it, but just for the sake of it, um, how much emphasis was placed on historical accuracy in development? And in the end, how much do you think that accuracy kind of matters to the public when they kind of play games? Um, uh, so a, a high degree... But also we choose what stories to tell, right? Mm. Like, um, so Tassing is not a real place. Kearsaw is not a real place. Mm -hmm. Um, By constructing a fictional place that plausibly could have existed in this time, in this region, Mm. I was able to combine elements of places and people that didn't exist historically anywhere, um, but could have. So um, I actually saw a really great Tumblr post by someone who lives in Oberbayern mm-hmm. and they were like, is this a real, like they were even thinking like, is this oh, a real that's place? Rules. And um, because they're like, the naming sounds right. Like there's tons of places that are like assing um, or like whatever ing, like all over that region. Shouts and fucking. <laughs> and yeah, there's fucking. Um, but the, the, it is like, I mean, I, I, I constructed the name, um, to sound really, really familiar. Mm. And it does. Like, lots of Germans, and especially Bavarians, are like, this sounds like it could be a real place. And Kearsaw, um also sounds like it could be a real place. And the number of elements, like, the, the person did a fantastic breakdown where they looked at a lot of places, mostly in Oberbayern, but also I think there's, like, a couple in Tyrol and a couple mm-hmm. in um, uh, Lower Bavaria, where they found, they're like, well, this place has an infam, and this place has two saints, and this place has this. And, and it's like, yes, and I was inspired by all of those, but none of those places had all of those things. Mm. So I made a fake place. <laughs> and um, But by doing that, I was free to represent things the way that I wanted and tell the story specifically as I wanted. 
Um, it is a fiction, but I was inspired by Umberto Eco, who yeah. the Abbey from Name of the Rose is not a real place, and the yeah. Edificium is fantastic, but it's fine. <laughs> like, like I, having a crazy labyrinth library that is the yeah. largest library in Christendom, filled with you know potentially thousands of books, is is a fantastic element. But it's also awesome in the story, and I can't conceive of a name of the rose without the Edificium. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so being historically accurate was very important, but we're not telling a historical story. We're telling a fictional story set in history. So that gave us the liberty to make certain choices about representation and focus and all that sort of stuff that would have been a lot harder to do if we stuck with, like, no, this is a very real place with very real historical people, um, and we have to cleave exactly to what we know. Um, I think that would have been a lot harder, um, but we didn't. So, uh, so for example, like one of the things that came up. So, and this is a really touchy thing, and we discussed it for a while. Is, um, like, corporal punishment and violence, and like spousal abuse and family mm, abuse. Yeah. And it's like, well, historically, this is probably going on a lot. Like, it's really commonplace. Like, one of the things with Lenhart, um, like, we had elements where Lenhart was physically abusive. Mm -hmm. And not, like, in, you know, in gameplay, but it was, like, part yeah, of the yeah, story. No, yeah. And, and I was like, can we talk about this and have these characters actually be shocked does that feel anachronistic and weird and so like it was a really weird thing because i'm like these guys would be hitting people all over the place and i'm like i don't want to tell that story yeah, <laughs> and no. and it so is... we just de we decided like it's totally fine for lenhart to be a piece of shit in every other way we do not also need to bring up the topic of spousal abuse <laughs> and beating children and like all this other shit so I just said, like, that's not part of the story anymore. Like, that's just not a story that we're telling here. Someone else wants to do it, Ugh, I yeah. guess. But, like, I don't want to. And nobody else on the team wanted to. So we, we made that choice. So, yes, it's historically accurate. But, again, we choose what we focus on and what we don't focus on. Um, and that's kind of how we approached it. And I definitely, I think that falls within the bounds of, like, comprehensibility to modern sensibilities because like mm -hmm. you know you can't include that content without shaping directly how it's going to be seen and yeah. uh, i think that was definitely like a good call and similarly i think you've kind of answered the follow-up question because the the, the attempt at, if not historical accuracy even a certain kind of verisimilitude in, in how it kind of comes across but seems to have aided its impact for a lot of people who are familiar with like the area in place which is awesome like i can't think of a, a higher compliment to receive honestly for the work that's been put in yeah so i i guess this is kind of where we kind of talk a bit like less about Pentiment and more about art and video games as a kind of lens of history, because, you know, obviously Pentiment is far from the first game to give a portrayal of a historical times and place. And like we were, we were kind of tossing ideas around and going, so what games do we think have kind of touched on history that are like cultural touchstones in modern society? And off the top of our heads, we were like, okay, there's a few big blockbuster titles that busy themselves with history. And there's like the Call of Duty series, which we're going to talk about, and like other big franchises like Assassin's Creed, and in a different way, kind of like Civilization. And, you know... We were, we were kind of kind of thinking that while Pentiment obviously offers an answer to this question, and we'll get into it later, but more broadly, what do you think art owes to its audience and to the people of the past when it offers a depiction of history, and does it owe anything to them? 
Um, I don't think it owes anything to anyone. Um, but I do think that um, there's n- you can't really abdicate responsibility. Mm. Which is to say, when you portray something, again, there's no neutral... There's nothing neutral about just like what I was saying, like I choose, I am choosing to tell a story about 16th century Germany or Holy Roman Empire where we don't really bring up spousal abuse and child Mm. corporal punishment. I'm making that choice and um, I'm conscious of that and aware of that there. I I do think this idea, um, not that everyone promulgates it, but like the people who are like, well, this is just history. Like it happened. It's like, yeah. step off. Like yeah. you, you're doing this, like you're choosing to write about this place and this time and these people and to focus on these interactions and you, you're picking all of this. You're telling a story and you're choosing not only what to talk about, but what not to talk about and how to talk about it, how to frame it. And, um, you're that author and you're 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 not um the idea of the historical record as a thing that is known definitively that is transmitted neutrally is just fic- that is in itself a fiction and mm-hmm. so you don't owe anyone anything but um you are the author and the agent of that thing um you're choosing your own version uh of history to tell and transmit and you have to be very aware of what you're doing and what you're communicating and not communicating to people. So it's more of a like on your the... own conscience be it. If that is that, is that Yeah. Absolutely. I like how I like how that feeds exactly into what you actually do in the game. Like when you're choosing what, what to put in uh the mural at the end or or even when you're just um working on uh, the other pieces of art earlier on with Andreas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's 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 why we introduce that whole concept in the scriptorium when he's working on the book of hours where Andreas Mm -hmm. is kind of like, you know, because uh, to be honest, a lot of the thoughts about art are very, very contemporary thoughts about them. Yes. They're not really thoughts that probably would have necessary. I mean, who who knows, but like their art was done in a particular way. And yes, during the Northern Renaissance, there were things that were being done that were pioneering, um and that's great but you know if you're if you're illustrating a book of hours um and you're doing the calendars there's kind of a way that you do it like each month shows a certain thing and that's kind of how that's what the client wants that's what they expect uh and that's what we see over and over in most of these uh, manuscripts there are exceptions but mostly you have a job to do you know what you're supposed to do and you do it and piero is kind of saying like hey man but that's not really that's not the way things are anymore. Like things have changed and you're, you're you choosing to portray this, even though you know, it's not real, that's on you. And yes, someone paid you to do it, but you're still being complicit in it. I'm reminded, I mean, this is a a much less kind of politically fraught version of it, but I'm reminded of the fact that in Australia where Christmas falls during the summer months, there's still like a lot of appetite for depictions of Christmas as being snowy and white, um, Mm -hmm. which doesn't fit at all with the underlying (laughs) reality, but it's what, it's what people expect to see, right? Santa's with surfboards, things like that. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, it's also in uh, terms of of, of art and and artwork, even today, I think a lot of artists and, and, and friends of mine who, who have gone to art school and, and are serious about their craft, you know, even they fall to put bread on the table, you know, not unlike Pentiment, is you take uh, commission work and you take things, you know, people ask you 
to do art for certain corporate installations or they ask for certain you know uh, uh, things to be drawn and made and and you don't get a choice in in that either like i don't think even now you can't say look art is now a it's free to be sure but it's not free of of basic you know imperatives even now we do in fact live under capitalism and you do in fact need to survive (laughs) well i mean just just if if i could elaborate on that um i mean a lot of this also um came out of my experiences growing up my father um he's retired now but he for most of his adult life worked as a freelance bronze sculptor um which is not an easy living in southern wisconsin um in the american midwest and um, I'm not going to exaggerate and pretend we were impoverished, but we were poor and we struggled and we had to move around a lot because we couldn't make rent. And my dad had very clear artistic visions about the things that he wanted to do. And when he achieved those things, he was very thrilled. And when those things did not sell, it did not go well emotionally <laughs> or yeah. financially. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad is a very, uh, very opinionated person. And um <laughs> And the way he interacts with clients, um, sometimes I was like absolutely f- floored. Like, I mean, he's he's one of those guys who's like, I'm the artist. Like, I decide. And I'm like, I don't know if you actually do, Dad. Um, and But I mean, he, you know, like sometimes he got his way and sometimes he did not. And sometimes he lost jobs. And so growing up, like seeing that, uh, that's real. I mean, you know, like we that was a real thing that I lived through, you know, obviously vicariously through my dad, but, um, that reality of, you know, my dad would take jobs. He, he did the bronze fonds, which is crazy because like, it's a pop culture thing, but people love it. Um, and it's, some people think it's, it's like, there was actually a big fight in Milwaukee, uh, which is where the bronze fonds went up. Um, because a lot of the artists there thought it was, you know, really crass and vulgar and, um, you know, tacky or whatever. But the thing is, it's by far the most popular piece of artwork he's ever done because people love the fonts. Yeah. <laughs> and so people, people <laughs> like go, if you go and look up the bronze fonts on Google images, you're going to find tons and tons of pictures of people standing next to the bronze fonts with a thumbs up smiling. And so it, it's, it's so weird. Like, you know, in the meantime, he made, you know, in the eighties, I remember he made a bunch of, sculptures of uh Erte, the the russian french artist Erte made uh, a bunch of uh you know he was an art deco artist and my dad made sculptures of women based off of Erte paintings and they're fantastic they're some of the most beautiful sculptures that my dad ever made but mm. you know in the 80s he's making what are essentially you know in today's money it's probably like eight or nine or ten thousand dollar bronze sculptures of these beautiful little, you know, like art deco women, you know, they're like, you know, a foot long or a foot high. Like there's not a big market for that in Southern Wisconsin. Um, And so it was rough. It was rough seeing him pour his heart into these things that I thought and still think are beautiful, but like you got to make a living. And that was rough. So anyway, there's a lot of that that goes into my conception of Andreas as a working artist and the sort of, and, and myself as a, as a as a person making games for an audience like making choices and and accepting my limitations or not accepting them i did i was actually sort of thinking to ask like how much because it, it really did come across to me that this was this is a game by josh sawyer 
Um, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and I did sort of wonder how much of yourself you saw in Andreas. And uh, obviously you sort of say about your father and you sort of see him feeding through as well. And like, yeah, so I just wondered how much of yourself, you know, personally, do you actually think in Andreas? Um, I, I think a fair amount. I, I th- one of the other big inspirations, uh, you know, because I bring up Name of the Rose because it's, it's a little mm-hmm. more maybe understandable or accessible. Uh, but Andrei Rublev is also another big inspiration, especially for the overall structure of the game. Mm. Um, and Andrei in the film uh, is a fiction. So Andrei Rublev is a fictionalized life story, essentially. Not, you know, like most of the life story of... Uh, this Russian Orthodox icon painter. And it's one of my favorite films and it, it spans a long period of time and it's broken up into these chapters where, you know, in a Tarkovsky fashion, like sometimes nothing happens and sometimes crazy things happen. Mm. And, um, but you see the central character really go through a whole life, a whole like life as an artist, which I thought was really fascinating. And you see him really struggle with, um, his own faith and with his his art and his friendships and um i remember tarkovsky said even though tarkovsky's life is not really like andre rublev's mm-hmm. he said that it's the closest thing that he made to being an autobiography and i would say that that's the same for me in pentiment like is my life mm-hmm. really like andreas's no but i would say in terms of like how i thought about my craft as a young man and how that changed and kind of became a little cynical and kind of burned out as I approached middle age and then tried to work through it, I would say that that's very much the same. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's hard because it's, it's, it's not really an autobiography, but if anything, <laughs> the closest any game I've worked on uh, could come to an autobiography, it's, it's Pentiment. That's, that's mm. really fascinating. Um, well, I mean, for Pentiment 2, you just need to get Andreas on a bike, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> there is um there is actually a kind of on the nose thing where Andreas talks about the um the uh Church of Our Lady and the altar in Act Two, he's like, I really don't want to go back to Nuremberg. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um there's family reasons and grief and all this other stuff. But he also talks about um a mural that he's supposed to make, um, and mm-hmm. that it got like it initially had a few patrons and then it got more and more patrons and in a very Renaissance fashion, they all want to be included. And um, (laughs) it becomes logistically like really difficult to even conceive of how it's going to be done. And and he's very tired of kind of dealing with that. Um, And he's kind of like, it's very successful, but also this is not, this is not fun to work on. And there's a little bit of working on a crowdfunded game in there. Yeah. Like, you know, when you have when you have a lot of people who have contributed money, you have to be grateful for the fact that you wouldn't be able to do this thing if they didn't give you the money. But it becomes really hard to work your artistic sensibilities around theirs and their desire to be included. And it's a thing that you said that they could do. Um, and that uh, can be exhausting, even though, again, I'm grateful that it was able to be done. But there were times where it was just like, man, I really wish I didn't have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's 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 that as well. And uh, shout out and much love to our patrons. We all love you. Thank you for listening. <laughs> yeah. uh, Still not taking your suggestions, though. Like, leave them at home. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that, that. There's a lot. There's a lot to relate to in any creative process where you're like beholden to someone. And yeah. I do. 
I do kind of wonder because obviously we don't want to make this just like the Pentiment episode, but obviously Pentiment I think is the best distillation I've come across anyway of a lot of these issues of like you know history and its influence and how it is retold. What I'm curious about is we look at like the mainstream, and particularly we're going to talk about a little bit of the Call of Duty franchise because that's a that's an interesting franchise in its relationship to history, you mm-hmm. know. Um, just even, you know, to, to go kind of recently, there was Modern Warfare remake with the Highway of Death, um, mm-hmm. which attributed it to the Russians rather than to the Americans. Um, yeah. There was the uh, Call of Duty game that had to play or take a role in the assassination of absolutely, it was nailed on Suleimani. You know, a lot of the kind of historical retelling and redefinition of, you, you know, what we can see in just recent record actually happened is, is being redefined and retold. And yeah. partly, you have to look at it and go, well, the Department of Defense helps with Call of Duty's development. And as I believe they, they fund um, some portions of it, or at the very least supplement it through you know, advisors and similar. And so there's mm-hmm. this whole question of like how much of these games is defined by the paycheck which is ultimately being written for them. And I guess to, to kind of kick us off, because this is a bit of a kind of you know, open topic, really, it's, um, you know, does this speak to an underlying problem with you know, the ethics of using historical events of, say, mass slaughter and, like, world war and all the rest of it um, to entertain audiences? Can there be such a thing as, like, mindless fun um, derived from these kind of sources? And I I don't know, this is not a, like, leading question, just generally it's something we've been kind of kicking around recently. I mean, yeah, I I think it's very questionable. Um, I think that when you... I think when you are using things that are, especially within living memory, you have a much stronger responsibility um, to be honest about what you're doing. Um, and, and also understand that there's going to be a lot of people that are like, yo, dude, like either I was literally there <laughs> or there's this. And of course, we like we have so much more information and recording devices and things like that. Like, you know, we can debate about like, you know, we can look at Shakespeare and read Hollingshead's account of, of the Battle of Agincourt and how that's pretty ahistorical and very biased towards Lancastrian propaganda and Tudors and all that stuff. Um, but also there's like very little archaeological evidence. So we're kind of comparing written records and trying to piece together something. With something like the Highway of Death, it's not like there's a shortage of information <laughs> yeah. that we can use to say like, well, what really happened? Um so it gets a little more silly and and implausible and kind of ridiculous when it's rewritten so blatantly when i mean you had like what was it david from who was kind of like trying to pretend like he wasn't like complicit in you know kind of the the whole lie of getting rolling with wmds and and the iraq mm. war and it's like dude we're all we were all here like your articles are still up like we can reference yeah. them what are you doing um it just seems extra silly um, so I think, yeah, with these um, very proximal, um, you know, events, it becomes a, a little more absurd and a little more ridiculous. And yeah, both, you know, entertainment like, you know, t- Top Gun is another. So I just watched Top Gun Maverick and um, not to go too far away from games, but it's a similar yeah. issue where where you have, you know, American military contributing materially to yeah. how this is made. And there's a very weird, vague, like the enemy is not named ever. Like you never see the people ever. (laughs) Um, It's this kind of neutral, like, 
it's like it was very entertaining. I was like, this is really a thrill ride. Um, and also like the script I thought was well written, but also I'm like, it's really conspicuous how yes. weird the the unnamed enemy is. And and also there's a fundamental thing here where we just kind of accept again, and I think this is very common. We accept like some people can have uranium, like refined uranium, and some people mm-hmm. can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are never going to discuss it. Yeah. It's just a thing. <laughs> and yep. we're never, ever ideologically going to go into why the United States gets to decide that this unnamed state or group of actors, whatever, um, they can't have it. We just say, we don't want them to have it. We're going to blow them up. And we're never going to, we're never going to look underground and see that there's like a thousand people working here when it gets fucking bunker busted. We're just going to let that roll right around our brain and, uh, watch Jennifer Connelly and, and Tom Cruise make out. Um, so it, it's very weird because, yeah, like you didn't accidentally do that. You didn't accidentally mm. file, you know, like like sand all the serial numbers off of everything. So you have this generic enemy to tell your military story about. It's very weird. Um, and yeah, all the like, man, and I know it's told like because people are always like, dude, it's in a joking context. But it's so bizarre. And I know this is now an old thing, but like um, McNamara as like mm-hmm. a playable character I just like, that's so wild and so crazy. But then later, you know, Call of Duty was like, what if you're hanging out with Reagan and doing debriefings with him? And I'm like, and eating the jelly beans. Yes. Like, what if that? Yeah. <laughs> like, what if, man? Like, can we not? Like, why are we doing this? Man, this they, is so these weird. guns are so perfectly detailed. And like, <laughs> I can only assume the rest of the game is exactly as accurate as these weapons are. I, 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 do, think, so, but I yeah. do think that, like, g- gaming in a certain context has, like, an interesting extra layer of maybe not responsibility, but because it's it's an interactive medium, and I'm I can't sure. help but think famously of the press F for respecting, which is now of course the meme. Yeah. But you know, it, it, it's but it's oh, the immortalized you know, forever that fucking uh, sh- that sure, is, that is video game history right there. It, it, yeah, <laughs> but but you know, for, and what you were saying earlier about like the decision not to include spousal abuse is is i sometimes think about especially when you're talking about these sort of war shooters world war one or two or or any of the call of duty franchise really is is it has to be there has to be a gameplay loop it has to be not just narrative it has to be interesting and challenging and 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 fun in a way and i wonder if that sort of creates like an extra pressure and a sort of estrangement from telling history as it is especially for these like sort of larger blockbuster kind of projects oh i would imagine i mean you know it's you know to a certain extent even in something like fall at new vegas regardless of your faction choices we all we always have and you know this is certainly something you can criticize there's always raiders essentially there's always people that we kind of say like these guys are just fucking crazy <laughs> like they're so goddamn crazy they're just hostile and you look at them and you're like you look like road warrior people and you're gonna try to murder me and so i can just kind of endlessly turn you into flying piles of body parts and yeah these are the that's okay the, yeah they're the barbarians from civilization so. yeah they're they're the barbarians <laughs> and we're like they're just why are they so crazy I don't know. They're raiders. Like that's kind of just the way they are. Yeah. Um, but then on the other hand, like, purely as a gamer, like I don't want to 
you know, have a, a moral quandary about every single person yes. I stab in the neck when I'm playing Assassin's Creed, you know? <laughs> yes, and, and, and you know what? It's, it's, again, I feel like you don't necessarily have to dismiss it, but you do have to acknowledge it. Um, you know, I remember, God, what was it? Was it Ninja Gaiden 3 where it kind of did this... Um, I only saw videos of it. I didn't play it, but I think it did this kind of weird thing where it was like, sometimes when you fucking cut a guy's legs off, he like lies on the ground and cries for his mom. And I'm like, mm. do I need this in Ninja Gaiden? I don't Ninja, know. Um, Ninja Gaiden soldier of fortune. Yeah, it's fantastic. What you really need is for Cicero to appear to you in a vision and to say, are you sure you should be doing this? This is yes. a moral thing to be doing. Um, so yeah, I don't know, but I mean, like, yeah, like sometimes again, like again, I can watch Top Gun and I can say, I, Josh can say, Hey, we're really gliding around some shit. That's a little silly, but I can also say that was a really entertaining movie. Um, (laughs) and, and maybe, and maybe art, maybe it's better than watching, you know, like Rambo three where um shout out to the brave muhajideen um, <laughs> fight, fighting fighting against uh the soviets our eternal enemy um until they're not like maybe it's better i don't know i don't know i think it's complicated but i do think that you have to as, as someone making these games even if you say like yeah we want the player to be able to kind of just chop people up and blow their heads off and 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 we accept that we're gonna kind of categorize them in this way to make you not feel um awful while doing it if that's what you want to go for i I guess this kind of this prompts a question because you know so we're talking about like call of duty and these kind of style games which are dealing with like semi-contemporary like you know political events where we can literally go this you in the replies to people when they try and (laughs) contextualize it but like in comparison you've got games like assassin's creed and the plague tale games um which kind of lean heavily on historical trappings but are very clearly fantasy and so i guess there's a question of is there a difference between games that use history as a backdrop to tell a a fantastical story and games that are more grounded in the period of the examine is it is it a difference in terms of like intent or is it a difference in terms of like you know the kind of naked propaganda value of it that that changes the burden that's on like the offers do you think i do think personally i do think it does change the burden um i think when you retell an actual thing like this is how it happened and how the dude or the lady or the people did it in this way and this is how they like there's that's a lot um like I was, I was thinking about, uh, yeah, Assassin's Creed. You know, it kind of gives you the great greatest hits of historical personages, um, <laughs> but it's not really about those events. It's using mm-hmm. it as a backdrop, um, not quite in the same way as Pentiment, but sorta. Like, you know, there's a fiction here, and that that fiction is even more fictional than Pentiment's fiction. Um, I, I, I did it's... miss the uh, the on rail shooter in the middle of Pentiment. Martin Luther. So, so, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna hang out with, with Leonardo and, and miss a bro hug if you don't do the prompt. And, you know, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna do things in, in these places, but like the stuff you're doing, it's not like, actually, well, I'm saying this, but I don't know, maybe they have, but like, you know, you're not shooting JFK. You're not like part of that. Um, You're on the edges of these things while they happen. (laughs) Imagine. I don't don't know, man. Um, So, so you're, 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 you're part of history, but you're not part of the main events and you're not retelling all that stuff. You're on, 
you're on the sides of it. And I think that that, um, like I said, it makes it easier. It made it way easier for me on Pentiment, but it allows you to tell your own story and make your own fiction while still being true to, there is a lot of value to just quote unquote being the trappings because if the trappings are really, really well grounded. Uh, you can learn a lot about from that. You can convey a lot of, um, you can convey a lot of things about life and people and mm. their interactions and the material reality in which they lived, which I think is very critically important. Um, Got to throw in some Marxism there. Um, <laughs> but like understanding that is important. And so even if it's a fiction in there, um, there's a lot of value to it. And I do think that when you're like, no, this is literally the event and you're really in it and you're really doing this stuff, uh, it gets trickier. I did, I even, even in books like, um, you know, the uh, Bernard Cornwell, the, the Sharps series. Yeah. Um, like Sharp is part of the Peninsular Wars and he interacts with historical people, um, but it's also a fiction and it's basically swashbuckling. And so he's there when cool things happen, but he's not, it's not like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fiction on its own. And so there's not a lot of people who are going to read that and be like, that's, ah, Napoleon wouldn't have done whatever. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's not really the part of the story, dude. <laughs> yeah, the difference between a story that's like, say, about Joan of Arc versus a story yeah. which Joan of Arc features in that is really about this other cool, yeah. you know, video game protagonist tooling around. Exactly. Cool. My, my, my favorite I just want to... Um, um, sorry, go on, of, Rob. Uh, sorry, my, my favorite bit of an Assassin's Creed historical weirdness is that in Valhalla, you're, you play a Viking and, like, you can raid monasteries for, like, loot and you're heavily incentivized <laughs> to do so and you can run around with a big axe and, like, hacking guards in the head and all that. But then the moment you put your axe into, like, one unarmed monk, the game goes, I'm sorry, it is not allowed to kill civilians. I'm like, but... <laughs> but, but <laughs> What am I doing? Like <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's more con cultural, you know, contemporary cultural sensibilities providing like a, a kind of a, a content filter that's kind of insurmountable, uh, particularly with like the ESRB rating and all the rest of it. Surely, I was um, yeah. I was going to bring up there as well. Uh, does anyone actually remember there was a game where you had to shoot JFK? Yes. Oh I yeah, yeah. JFK it. Reloaded. That yeah. was the whole game. <laughs> you had to like try and accurately there was was there a cash am i remembering right that there was a cash prize if you managed to simulate exactly the exact oh, conditions of the incident so there i don't remember that i just remember oh, it was right. oh, really oh, oh. notorious and people were going wild about it so you know supposedly there was a cash prize but it was all just like the guy shit posting essentially is what we call oh, it today great. um but yeah oh. no he did say a cash was prize a, to anyone was a, who can reproduce the shot peter molyneux joint was it uh <laughs> No. <laughs> just click clicking through to get to jfk's brain sure yeah awesome um, all this all this talk of assassin's Creed just makes me think more games should allow you to pal around with karl marx oh no i mean god has there been any games that have allowed you to really yes yeah. assassin's, assassin's creed syndicate, syndicate has syndicate. karl marx yeah. in it wait which one syndicate syndicate, syndicate yeah and oh, wow. it's, the, it's the one no. that no one played because then they did um, uh, Odyssey and they said, oh, for the first time you can choose between a, f a male and a female character. It's like, no, you yeah. didn't. You did that in the last game, but nobody played it. I did. But, yeah. you know, okay. I, there's a lot wrong with me. Actually, there's a, there's a really interesting counterpoint, right? Because, um, you know, we're saying if it's, if it's not really about the person, it doesn't matter. But Karl Marx's portrayal in Syndicate is really problematic. He straight up, like, contradicts 
the political philosophy of actual Karl Marx in his dialogue <laughs> to the players and like urges, you know, um, reconciliation with like bigger forces when he was very much not about that. And that's, that's interesting of does that, when it's a political figure, is it different necessarily? Like, do we owe more fidelity to the views and opinions of like political figures in history when we portray them? I don't well, know. I, I guess, but... Yeah, I do. I do think, like I said, <clears throat> if you're going to use those great figures of history, I do think that if you, again, you're making choices about how to portray them and what they're doing and what they're talking about. Like with, with Leonardo in Assassin's Creed 2, it's really light and mm -hmm. you don't really get very deep into him and he doesn't like, I don't remember him saying anything where you'd be like, whoa, like, ah, that doesn't that doesn't sit well with his notebooks. Like, he would never say that. Um, whereas with, some, with someone like Marx, where it's like, no, dude, there's like literally entire books about like, this is exactly what I believe. Then it, it's a little weirder. <laughs> It's a little weirder when Pretty he's famous like famous book you may have heard of it <laughs> but really not actually that's where it kind of gets a little silly and it, you know it depends on how they're included and how they're represented but i do think yeah when it's um when it's kind of like actually we're going to portray this person in a way that is completely dissimilar to everything we know about what they how they lived because obviously there's also a difference be people can be very hypocritical but like unless there's some really reason to think like oh yeah marx actually this is a big ruse and he he loved capitalism um <laughs> then that, that's a little silly and ridiculous yeah I i'm suppose, just picturing so... i'm picturing a call of duty where they like include karl marx somehow i think i think they would they could absolutely pull it off um it would be no less ridiculous than some of the things they've getting away with Hon oh, honestly <laughs> honestly i've been wondering they've, they've got like call of duty future soldier right i think i'm waiting for like this call of duty time travel kind of thing for that very reason <laughs> like the dastardly soviets have invented time travel and you must time travel to stop oh, them from I distorting mean, history can you imagine red alert but played completely straight yes that's <laughs> what i'm thinking <laughs> <laughs> oh man so we, we talked about like these very on the nose, like it's, it's, it's centered, you can see it straight away, but there is like a subtler level to you know, like, you know, the political subtext of games and, and its reproduction because like an unintuitive example is civilization, which people look at and they go, well, okay, the inclusion of certain leaders is problematic, etc. But ignoring that, civilization has kind of baked into its core these kind of Western narratives of development and discovery. There's a linear tech tree, progress through the ages, there's a primitivism versus advancement, there's the barbarians that we've literally talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the question is, are these sort of like default political assumptions that find their reproduction in art, are they just like a fact of life of every age? Um, is that just something we always have to contend with? Um, or is it something that is like a, you know, on some level, a, a more deliberate and more kind of worth investigating kind of decision on the part of designers, do you guys think? Well, I think that um, we kind of do things the way that we learn them initially, or like we hmm. see them before we start examining them critically. And the more we do it, maybe the more we go like, oh, wait, <laughs> why yeah. am I doing things this way? And especially when things are mechanized, like... Um, you know, when, when there's a mechanical thing to, like, a, in most games, progress and the growth of power are, like, things you try to do and that's good. And therefore, whether it's, like, tech trees in AoE or civilization or something, then you, you're portraying the passage of time and the development and the changes of culture in a fashion that is oriented around the mechanization of progress. Um, so of course there's going to be <laughs> difficulties if that's not what you're trying to actually portray, um, mm. because that's mechanically what's happening. Um, 
so I think a lot of it is is it's unexamined. I w I would say it's unexamined, or it's examined and ultimately decided like, well, I mean, this is kind of this yes. is the sort of gameplay that we want, and it is problematic, but it does work mechanically and narratively, even though it's reinforcing things that are that people have reasonable issues with. Yeah, yeah. so it's and, kind of lean, leaned on to provide a framework that lets players kind of grasp things quickly and simplifications that allow the you know to be a more a more interactive experience, whereas the, the reality is perhaps messier. Yeah, I mean, me. games games tend to sort of um, work on competition rather than, especially something like Civilization. I think I've, mm -hmm. I've got a vague yeah. inkling, inkling we might have covered this on the uh, the last episode Josh was here for, but. The thing that always strikes me is that the later save games have uh, like a, a, a an option where you can win through world peace. You can have like a, a diplomatic victory, but it's still your victory. You still, you have to be voted to like the, the rest of the civilizations have to vote for you as the best guy, and then you win. <laughs> you can't just have one where because because obviously if you had one where well everybody wins, there'd be an incentive to just sort of pick that, and it it makes me think of the. Um, the the debate recently about uh is com is the communist meta too strong in victoria 3 <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah where people were like well i i i just left i left my uh society just doing something overnight and everyone was like ready to murder each other when i when i came back why does capitalism require like endless growth <laughs> that sort of thing <laughs> It's it's definitely kind of it's it's a it's an interesting thought, and I guess there is that whole kind of thing where at the end of the day we're all kind of stuck with these kind of implicit kind of biases, and unpicking them is a lot of work on an individual level, let alone trying to get someone else. Like you know, if if it was easy to get someone to re-examine their fundamentals, there'd be a lot more Marxists in the world, right? When you when you really kind of come to it. And I suppose there's only so much of it can be expected of like an artistic kind of property, let alone, you know, video games that are under like intense, like often competing corporate pressures. So I suppose at the end of the day, maybe it is kind of it's it's a necessary factor in the kind of material reality we live in. Like, I mean, we're just going to be subject to these pressures. And until we get rid of capitalism, there's nothing you can really do about that. I think um, I think you, you can't really rely on, on the player to sort of... Um necessarily to examine what it is they're doing i know like some games mm. specifically try to confront you with like your actions um with varying degrees of, su of success shout uh, out to spec ops for lying yeah <laughs> but um certain things like i mean like i think the call of duties are relying on the fact that the average player is not gonna question like a sort of a sort of consider the the frame in fact i think a lot of the the appeal to like maybe the department of defense in in helping with those games is not just that the players won't sort of question the narrative they're being presented but that by like they'll actually take some ownership of it and mm. then if someone someone in the future tries to tell them oh like the americans committed this like you know atrocity they'll it's on some level they'll think well no that's not right i i, I was there you know i i went through this and it was definitely it was definitely the russians that did it I, I Call of Duty has created a new generation of boomers We've yeah done it. yeah i killed yeah. Soleimani, therefore he was a bad guy like yeah all, yeah. all the uh, all the british people who were definitely at dunkirk <laughs> Ronald reagan is real and he's my friend <laughs> 
Yeah. No, I, I, that's, I think that's a really astute observation, Jamie, and one that hadn't occurred to me, if I'm really candid. Um, yeah, cool. So I do I think... I'm oh, sorry. Go on. No, no, go I was on. just going to say, I do think with a lot of this stuff, I, I think... I think the conversations around it would go a lot better if more people could just acknowledge it and say, yeah, I made this choice. I think it has not to go too far off topic here, but like, it's kind of like the Nepo baby discussions where (laughs) (laughs) people who clearly, clearly benefit from nepotism uh, get incredibly defensive and, and weird about it. And really it's no one's, well, maybe some people are saying like, throw yourself in a ditch, but like they're, just acknowledge that that's what happened and that you benefited from it and that it would have been much more difficult if you did not have the connections that you did and that it is not fair and that it's much more difficult for other people. Like we're always going to have to deal with some unfairness in life and how we live and grow and, and all that sort of stuff. But it's infuriating when people just say, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not real. No, I don't think it's actually a problem. It's like, come on, man, like just yeah. just acknowledge that you're making this choice and you understand that it reinforces certain things and you made it for these reasons because the game really just wouldn't do the things that you want it to do mechanically or narratively mm-hmm. if you don't make those choice. And then we can move on instead of bullshitting each other about like what you did, like, you know what you did, just come clean about it and then we can well, be adults. In, in counterpoint, Josh, if you admit that you got there from a position of privilege and that life is unfair, doesn't that behoove you to maybe consider perhaps doing something to make it less unfair? I don't know sure. about that. Yeah, well, like, that would be the like next Josh step, which gonna... is great. <laughs> but if I you mean, can't get Josh to the first step, you're not going to get to the second. <laughs> I feel like Josh is going to end up with half of the fucking British press in, press in his mentions. This. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, we're not, we're not talking about trans issues, he's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. well, um, Josh, what I do actually... you think of Prince Harry? <laughs> I actually saw um, someone today, just some guy on a forum today, passionately defending uh, Nepo babies because <laughs> in the initial wave of stuff, someone pointed out that um, uh, Timothy Chalamet, is it, from, from Dunk? Yeah. yeah. His uh-huh. uncle directed Leprechaun 2, and someone was saying <laughs> that, that, is, that is just ridiculous. Like, you know, how... It, and it's like, yeah, okay, so he, he, Leprechaun 2 is not a huge blockbuster or anything, but he, that's still a family connection to people in the movie industry. It's sure. not it's not nothing. But like like I say, I mean, that's just, that. Uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, that's not Timothy Chalamet's forum account. That's just someone uh, like, <laughs> put out because their, their fave is being like, not even really attacked, but people are just going, you know, like here is a thing that you might not know and everyone's just outraged because... This is very defensive. They're just very yeah. defensive, yeah. Yeah, yeah, get over it. <laughs> so uh, we're coming on. We're coming on to the back part of the podcast, and we did want to do like some discussion on the particulars of Pentiment, which gets into kind of spoilers for the story. So I don't know, Jamie, are you wanting to to head off to play Pentiment then, or? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm actually, I am actually going to go and can it because I'm on the edit for this, so. I've got basically. Oh, right. well, damn, I've got yeah, twenty four okay. hours to finish the game, otherwise I'm gonna spoil it. Time starts now. Grace, <laughs> the clock's on. Yeah, so listen, you. if you're tuning in on Saturday, this is why that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well uh, right. it, it's been a pleasure as always, Josh. Thanks for coming on and I'll uh, I'll catch everyone else next week. Thank you so much. All right. Grand. Catch you, Jamie. Catch you later, Jamie. So, um, 
So yeah, so uh, obviously at this point onward, spoiler warning, if you have not completed Pentiment, we're going to be talking about its themes with particular reference to things that develop in the plot and, and you know, asking Josh about, like, how this came together. Um, so now is your get out point. And just to reiterate, it's a very good game. So if you think you might play it at all, I would really strongly recommend don't listen to us, go play it and then come back. You'll enjoy the conversation more. So all of that out of the way... Um, I guess it's kind of like there's a lot going on in Pentiment and you kind of you touched on it at the start with kind of some of the broad themes. Um, if it's all right, can I like I, I played it last night and so I've only you know I've slept on it and I've had a bit of time to think about it. Can I give a short summary of what I think it's got, what is kind of ideas in it, the thesis of it is, if you will, and then we can maybe kick off from there and just kind of explore it a bit. Would that work for you, Josh? Sure. OK, so like obviously the clues in the title. Um, for the benefit of our listeners who don't know, Pentiment is the anglicization of a uh, another term from Italian, pentimento. Um, and, uh, you know, full disclosure, I did not actually know this. It's a literal term of art. Um, but I was familiar with the underlying idea of it, which is that historically in development, particularly of oil paintings, you would have the painter would midway through kind of change directions, alter composition, make corrections. And these would be contained in the canvas, but obscured by the layers above. Um, and in you know over time, as colors faded, as varnishes warped, you would start to get hints of the original composition or the earlier image. And it, it doesn't apply like if someone, if an artist like painted a painting and then completely painted another one over the top of it on a different subject, it's not pentiment. Pentiment is this idea of the development of a single idea or subject and its changes and iterations over time. And so taking that it would be my guess as a metaphor for and a summation of what's going on in the text. It's talking about essentially the social reproduction of um, ourselves and our history, both in terms of, you know, we're continually retelling the past and reinterpreting it and building layers upon it. But the process of doing so is also establishing a base on which the future itself will in turn build. And the game has a real strong kind of... Um, ludonarrative kind of cohesion where you spend the game very literally trying to figure out what has happened at the earliest levels just like with you know the the murders you're, you're constantly looking back and going what actually materially happened here and often finding that and i think this is quite you know speaks to the cleverness of it there's not necessarily a true answer a lot of the time there's only the answer that you as a, an author of history and you're trying to understand it get to impose upon it and it gets into the kind of politicization and the, the, the socialization, you know, um, the social factors separate from political factors that go into the shaping of history and how ultimately, you know, we bequeath to the future through artistic representation, our understanding of ourselves, which is defined by what's been bequeathed to us by the past. And I'll just to kind of sum summarize, I'd say it's by far one of the most human games I've ever played in its genuine warmth and in its sensitivity to how it handles the characters and their families and the development across time. I honestly don't think I've played anything like it. Um, it's I don't think any other game has quite had the same level of care and attention to the people. Like, it's not just history, mm. it's people and their part in the reproduction of it. So I also I'm found it... Sorry, I just want to no, add, like... I, so the game takes place over like a 25-year time span, and it is quite... I did like how... Uh, I mean, you as Andreas Moller are like an out, essentially an outsider um, when you start, uh, mm -hmm. you know, year zero. And then you meet these characters like um, Martin, for example, is the one that really stands out to me. He starts off as like, a, you know, he's like a 
a ne'er do well who like sort of almost like lay about pretty much and then as the game progresses he's still like the same guy but like he <laughs> becomes more um at, like you sort of I, f- I found myself becoming more like almost enamored with him like the, especially the um this is really... this is really this is really funny alistair because i didn't get the i didn't get through it but i figured it out and then failed the dialogue checks josh am i right in thinking it's not martin later on it's the guy he went on the banditry spree with who's taken his life that is correct. Yeah, it's not. Actually it's actually Martin. a different person. Yeah. Oh right. <laughs> and well, it's entirely. It is entirely possible to miss many. Yeah. I've actually seen yeah. many players who completely miss that Martin Bauer is is actually this guy named Jobst Ferber, who was his friend, who came back to take over his life. Wow. Well, there you go. <laughs> that's You've that's why me. he seems so much nicer. <laughs> and by the way, like, that's incredible. based on a real historical thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> it, it, it happened multiple times in history. Um, yeah. You know, it was impossible to just pick up someone else's life. Still, I mean, identity theft still exists today, but it wasn't quite the same back then. Yeah. What What was really interesting, actually, just this is kind of away from the broad kind of theme, but I did get the impression that that was partly why he was so understanding of the, you know, implied lesbian relationship. Again, I didn't get deep into that. I didn't have the time in the narrative playthrough I was doing to to really progress it. But I got the impression his wife was in a lesbian relationship with another woman and he was very understanding of the whole thing, partly because she, I got the impression she knew that yes. he wasn't who he claimed to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just I found that whole thing just so beautifully like human, so very, like I could picture people being that way um across time and place so yeah anyway I, I was originally asking am i a million miles away or is that kind of like part of a central thesis of what you were going no, for with that's Benjamin? that's it you got it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's uh yeah it's um i think that unlike any other game that i've worked on i i designed I didn't literally write the dialogue for every character, but Hmm. I designed every character. Every character that exists in the game is a character that I conceived of and wrote up their, their brief bio and how they relate to other people Mm -hmm. um, and gave direction to the other writers. If someone else wrote them and what their arc would be. And that was to really make the feeling of a very strongly interconnected community of people. Um, where you were really seeing them live out over a long period of time and that they would feel very genuine um, and that uh, the changes in the community would would just feel, like you said, a lot warmer and more human. Um, And the way that people interact with each other, like there's there's a lot of, um, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are several essentially same-sex relationships going on in different Mm -hmm. forms. And the ones that you can press on, generally speaking, people tell you to shut the fuck up like they're like who cares like don't talk about that i don't know what you're talking about like <laughs> stop um yeah because i mean the thing is it's it's weird it's like we've almost forgotten that until very very recently that's how things still worked where yeah. people kind of knew like yeah this guy is gay and we kind of all know it and like maybe people are shitty about it and maybe they're not but generally people just don't talk about it because it's socially unacceptable but we love this person and yeah, they live next to us and they're part of our lives and we don't want them to suffer even if at some level we have these reprehensible judgmental beliefs about them they're part of my life and so shut the fuck up yeah the least not going to talk theory. about it yeah, and like, and 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 so I, I, and the same thing with Martin, where Martin, um, 
you know, or, or Yobst, Yobst basically, you know, he left a life behind where he, he killed somebody mm-hmm. like that's, a, I mean, you don't necessarily find out that detail when you find out he's an imposter, but in his hometown, he killed a man in a bar brawl and he's, he fucking murdered somebody like, or manslaughter <laughs> at the very least, I guess, technically, but like he, and then when Martin dies, he takes over his life and he understands that he has really been given a second chance at life. And so he tries to be not only better than Martin was, but better than he was. Yeah. And he's very aware that Brigida, his wife, his 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 adopted wife, um, has a relationship with Veronica. And he's just like, okay. Like, I, I, that's... There's a bit on the Common Green where he makes a joke about it and she goes quiet and then he apologizes to her in a really yep. sincere way. And I was like, that, that was the moment where I was like, this is an incredibly well- <laughs> realized kind of interaction and dynamic between these characters so like hats off genuinely was quite impressed yeah my um, moment with martin was or well yobst was when uh, he said that some assholes just need their teeth pounded in and that really resonated <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah and um like it, it was it was it was fascinating kind of I'll, I'll be honest um my whole favorite sequence from pentiment is the sequence where the ethiopian priest um, you, you can take him out for lunch basically with the you know the local people and mm-hmm. all the women and their children show up and you then get a very beautiful uh, artistically like the, the art team absolutely fantastic um oh actually little note the person who drew the tiny owl above the salt well uh so you're not salt well <laughs> could you please tell them that they gave me infinite joy with that drawing and everyone you know, loves just... everyone loves the baby owl yeah no it's just <laughs> so good um but no, genuinely, like the 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 whole dialogue and explanation, and in particular the stealing of the hat you're wearing, and then what happens to the hat down through the years, just like that whole sequence to me felt like like almost like the heart of Pentiment, if you will, in many ways. <laughs> I don't know. It's just it, it's I can't see any other game that's not unless it's like really niche and indie, and I don't know about it. And apologies if you know anyone's listening to this and they're thinking, well, I'm working on that art. Like it's certainly of the most prominent kind of titles that have been kind of talked about in recent years. I can't think of any other game handling that quite so sincerely and using it. Like it's a really good, it really does convey what the game's about by just doing, like it just does it in front of you and it's like, you kind of get it over time. So yeah, it was, um, it was a, a real, um, it was really great to, to do that whole sequence one to include brother Subhat. Mm-hmm. And provide sort of a, a narrative hook for him through the Council of Constance, where there are records that Ethiopian yep. monks were were present there. Um, and so to have this sense of there was a favor that was done in the past, and he's coming back to return that favor by presenting a Bible. And then he's showing it to the children who are kind of stunned and mystified by it. And you see it. So you, you initially see Sebhat looking different than everyone else and not only different from everyone else but different from everything around him yes. because he is driven in the style of ethiopian manuscripts yes. which has a extremely rich uh and long tradition oh, and gorgeous. and then when people when he tells the story it's reversed where all the locals are now in his environment where they are outnumbered by people who they look like sebhat and sebhat is the one who fits mm. in and they all stand out and the whole story is being told within the shrine of St. Moritz and St. Moritz is portrayed as a black African mm. in that time period, but he's illustrated as a black African through a European lens. 
So above Sebhat is this saint who is nominally Egyptian, but portrayed as a black African, but wearing European armor, portrayed in a European style. <laughs> it's, it, it's, 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 it's like, it's, there's so many like different, and then the children even talk about why is everyone brown? And he's explaining like, because people are different and in different parts of the world, they look different and they don't look like you at all. And there are other places where they don't look like you or me. And that's how the world is. And she's like, wow, crazy. <laughs> what, I, what I really appreciated about it as well was just how well it was worked in. This didn't, like, I think it's it, it really speaks to the heart of this game that it didn't feel like it stood out. It didn't feel like it was being dropped in. It felt like a natural, organic part of the development of what you were already doing. Um, and it's a shame to me that you can miss it, honestly. Um, you know, I know players can... Like, you know, if they go for lunch with someone else, they won't get that. But mm -hmm. it was genuinely, like, honestly very heartwarming. And, yeah, just... I, 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 I cannot stress enough how impressed I was by how well you managed to take a narrative, making a point about reproduction, about, particularly in the, 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 the central plot, which we'll get to in a minute. And yet, in many ways, as you play the game, that becomes the background to the human point that's being made. And it's just it just feels like such an antidote to the way history is used in most games, to be perfectly frank. Thank you. So speaking of like that central plot, so obviously the big reveal at the end is that the priest of the town has been coordinating the murders throughout purely for the purposes of covering up the true history as he, you know, comes to to understand it of where their saints came from. And he's afraid that this is going to, you know, shake their faith. And you get the narrative, you know, you get the dialogue option to, to counter him and say, I think you don't have faith in people to be able to understand and embrace this reproduction and change over time. Um, did you like, so I have a question, which is when you were sitting down to write this, did you always have in mind that it was going to be that particular priest that was going to be the villain in the end? Or did that develop over the course of developing the characters? I can only assume um, Josh just hates the church as much as I ended up hating no. the church at the end. <laughs> I, uh, I don't, I don't really, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't hate Catholicism. Um, I do think <laughs> that the institution, uh, has a lot to answer for, um, both in the past and right now. Um, but, um, Father Thomas and Amelie were always going to be sort of like the duo mm. with Thomas essentially manipulating Amelie and using her as both the, the, the actual author and the messenger of the notes. Um, and, but father Thomas is the exact like beef that he had and why he, like why he was doing it that got shaped over time. It was like more initially it was more like, um, against modernity and that over time i was like eh. um and, and it, it didn't really hold up with the individual characters and then eventually it came down to this idea of the portrayal of the saints as the saints became more prominent within the culture of the town and i realized that their background but also so central to the town's identity and their their faith as a community um that father thomas would see a threat to them and their identity as potentially a threat to the faith of the people. And so he decides, no, this is extremely important for me, whether or not that's realistic. And I don't even, I wouldn't even say necessarily that, that Thomas's view is something that you should look at and be rational about, mm -hmm. but it's also due to his own trauma from witnessing, you know, a community go buck wild um, and burn down an Abbey that almost yes. killed, that killed a bunch of nuns yeah. and almost killed sister Amelie. So he has this um, 
oversized uh, sense of responsibility to preserve the story, the orthodox story of the way things happened and are, um, and that leads him to do these really extreme things. It's the reason that I asked the question, and that's kind of interesting when you talk about his development of his motives as you were writing, because when I was first playing through, um, I, I, you know, very early on, I was like, is it, is it Amelie? Because she's right at the center of town, she's not moving around and wouldn't, you know, with the whole reversal and dramatic irony of, of literature, wouldn't that be interesting if she's the one who's secretly seeking out and going about? And I then kind of discounted it. I said, well, that might be a bit too on the nose. Um, that I think that's too straightforward. My first pick where I was thinking, oh, could this turn out to be the manipulator was I was thinking it might be Sister, I think her name was Illuminata. Yeah. Um, and my, my reasoning for it is I thought, well, we're establishing that she's highly intelligent. Um, she's a keen observer of people's behavior and is able to kind of, you know, uh, pick people apart quite well. She's very well read. Um, I totally caught that when you're doing that, oh, this this handwriting is not in any, you know, handwriting of any people we know can write. I'm sitting here going, yeah, you're excluding all the women from it. So, <laughs> you know, and she had direct access to the scriptorum and a lot of time on her hands because she was working in charge of a library. And so I was thinking, is it going to be her and is her stated reason just going to be pure stability and this mm -hmm. desire to kind of keep things as they are? Is it about, is it going to be a versus progress kind of kind of uh, narrative it develops, but more from a, a care from people? Because in the first chapter I was playing through it, I'm like, this very much seems like someone recognizes this guy is bad for the community. And not only that, he's now talking about Lutheran ideas, which are, you know, inherently going to be a bit destabilizing. Is this why he's been knocked off? Not for any particular thing, but because he represents this outsized influence on the community that's potentially maligned for it? Is that what's going on? And so it's interesting to me to hear that, like, you kind of pegged that, okay, it's, it's going to be this guy, but his actual reasons about what it was he was trying to preserve were developed over time. And it's really yeah. fascinating to me. Um... So I guess, like, I don't know, is there any part of the game and its narrative that you're particularly proud of that you look at and you go, you know what, I feel like this worked really well in execution, almost better than we'd kind of planned it? Um, I do think the sense of community, um, I think we did really well. Um, there's a, you know, there's a lot of inspirations um, that I had for the this game. And one of them was, there's a film called The Mill and the Cross. Um, mm -hmm. And it's about the creating of uh, Bruegel the Elders, um, the procession to Calvary. And okay. <laughs> it's a beautiful painting. And Rutger Hauer stars as the artist. Um, and it's one of the, you know, it was I think it was made like 10 years ago, maybe something like that, maybe six okay. years ago. And um, it's a very slow paced, you know, sort of ponderous film, but it's really beautiful. And there's a part early on where uh, because mannerist paintings often had like, and that painting has so many characters. There are like hundreds of characters. And there's a point where in the film he says, my painting needs to be big enough to hold everyone, everything. Mm. And um, I was like, this game needs to be big enough to hold everyone and everything, which is a way of sort of saying, I want to show broad society. I want to mm -hmm. show peasantry and I want to show nobility and monks and nuns and printers and doctors and Romani tinkers and charcoal burners and executioners. And we want a lot of characters and not just for the sake of having a lot of characters, but because it creates this really rich sense of society and how they interact and uh, gives you lots of different perspectives on 
life and religion and family and, and all those sorts of things. And how they change I, each other. Definitely. Yeah. And I thought, I, th I, th I thought in the end, um, I was most happy with how all of that came together. And if there's one thing I maybe regret, and I don't want to second guess it too much because the game <laughs> critically did very well, um, is, uh, the decision to remove the, all the Benedictines in act three, because I, I'd wanted to show the replacement by the poor Claire's because um, it's a reform movement and to kind of show progress and the change of time. Um, but I do think that if, if we had kept just the nuns, for example, just like, you know, Illuminata and Zidena and all of that, there could have been another interesting dimension and also would have kept Illuminata in the running as, as the thread puller, which a lot of people <laughs> immediately were like, well, she's not here anymore, so it can't be her. Um, yeah, yeah, but, definitely, definitely me. <laughs> but um, but like the way that the community worked and their relationship to it, um, and how people really felt like this was, it felt like a real place, and the people felt like real people with very human, um, flaws and virtues, and um, yeah, I think that's probably the best thing about it. Well, I think I've... I think one of the one of the things I really enjoyed was uh, the way. So essentially, the the text of the speech itself would change depending on what your perception of that person as the player slash player character is. So, like uh, when you're talking to um, to Till about uh, the Roman ruins and stuff, and uh, you learn that Till can actually read and stuff, and it literally changes the uh, the typeface that he's that you are mm -hmm. reading his text in when you find that out uh, i thought was really great and also like when you the bit the obvious one being when um you find out that amelie is the one that's got this you know incredible typeface on the yep. notes that she's been leaving and changes so, to purple yeah. yeah it's uh it's definitely i mean you know there's a really good article which i think we'll put in the show notes um where i think there's a there's a breakdown by the group which were doing the typefaces for you yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, really, really quite beautiful stuff. So I guess, um, so for kind of final question, because obviously like this, as much as we're saying, this is Josh Sawyer presents a Josh Sawyer production, right? Um, <laughs> this You said yourself that this is the work of many hands that have come together in support of this kind of vision you laid down. So I guess the final question would be, was there anything that came to it that you didn't initially conceive of, but that developed from your work with your kind of colleagues on this that you think, you know, was really, you know, transformative or that elevated the work? Was there like something they brought that you're like, man, I didn't envision it this way and it's 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 all the better for it? Oh, absolutely. Everyone on the team contributed something that, that changed my like I have very strong opinions <laughs> and ideas. Um and I, I push them, but you know, even things that I really believe in very strongly, if if people come back and they're like, dude, this is not it, <laughs> it's not happening. Um, you know, there's like, like the, the way the persuasion mechanic works. And I still think we need to iron out a few bugs for how that works, but the way pers persuasion works in the game was more mechanically kind of, um, mechanically raw in that you saw numbers <laughs> and mm. it was like a really weird and jarring feeling to suddenly see like, plus one minus two yeah um and mm -hmm. so like a bunch of people were like like we should hide all that and i'm like well but i want players to understand that the choices that they made are impacting this and they're like yeah, yeah but this feels really weird and jarring and so we went back and forth until we came up with the the colored pips up and down where it's essentially still the same information but it's just 
presented in a way that's not so, uh, like I said, like jarring. Um, and there's still, still work to do there, but it was because the people on my team were like, this is not doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, the portrayal of certain characters, you know, like Lenhart and what happened with him, um, my writing collaborators, you know, we went back and forth on what to do with the Miller, Lenhart, and mm-hmm. we were eventually like, this guy's got to fucking die. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, basically we're like, um, one of my writers said, there is no way that anyone is going to be satisfied leaving Act 2 unless Lenhart Miller is dead. Yes. Um, yeah. So see. that's kind of why things get railroaded through the mill. Um, but, you know, at least it's narratively satisfying, even if it's a little implausible in ways. Um, and then we had a lot of mini games where people on the team would, you know, look at it and, you know, they'd play it and they're like, this is really clumsy. This is really clunky. Um, there's a lot of pacing things where people would play and they would say like, this really drags, this conversation is really long. Um, or, you know, people would say like this, the way, like this character feels very similar to this other character is their way we can differentiate it. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I mean like the team, we were a very tight team. We started as like, it was just, um, Hannah and I, Hannah Kennedy is my art director. Mm-hmm. And then um, we added Kathy Nichols in animation, Alec Fry as a producer, and then Brett Kloster as our anime or uh, programming lead. But we eventually grew to like 13 people. And, um, you know, it was almost entirely remote. And uh, we stayed pretty close. And we communicated very well with each other. And we're very frank about, um, you know, issues we were having. And things got heated at times. But, um, nothing nothing wild like certainly nothing compared to some of the meltdowns <laughs> i've gone through on other projects so overall <laughs> it was a very um it was a very harmonious uh collaboration with all my teammates and uh couldn't could not have done it without them any of them well uh, i guess it really does take a village if you forget the i do have yeah. i do have one more question for you josh sure preferred culprits for the for the two murders i personally went for uh Ferenc and guy because those guys were assholes <laughs> they had Fair. It coming. yeah um i mean knowing mechanically so there's there's some like i guess it depends on if you're just gonna throw someone to the wolves um arguably some more harm happens with ferrance dying in the long run this is metagaming mm-hmm. Because mm. if you if if Ferenc dies, then um, uh, Vakslav, uh absolutely dies at the end of the game. He he is burned at the stake in the mural. Yeah. Um, however, if he lives, if if uh, Ferenc lives, he becomes an Inquisitor, and he will basically save uh, Vakslav and or Ursula if Ursula also potentially would have been burned at the stake. Oh, that's very obscure. Like I would have so, never guessed that. Yes, um, and it comes down to the fact that Ferenc is very open-minded when it comes to beliefs, um, which and he is an asshole. But the other thing, too, is if you leave Ferenc alive in Act 2, when you talk to him, he feels very bad about how things went. And he, um, especially if you didn't accuse him, if you didn't accuse him, he, he apologized to Andreas right away, and he's like, I'm sorry, like, I was... Um, he's like, it's not an excuse, but I was, like, under a lot of stress, and the Abbey was really suffering and i didn't know how to deal with it and i shouldn't have taken it out of on you i shouldn't have taken it out on the brothers that was my my fault basically um so he does get better even though it doesn't seem like it um so the person i think actually is the most likely to 
have been capable of doing it in my mind is lucky in act mm. one yeah. because he has a really compelling reason. <laughs> yeah. He is not afraid about getting in. He's demonstrably not afraid about getting in the Baron's face and he is clearly physically capable of doing it. Um, I think probably the person that causes the least harm, and this is often what happened in societies would be Attilia. Um, Old women often were the ones who were like, well, she doesn't have any kids. She's not, her husband's dead. Nobody likes her. So get rid of her. Um, And then in act two, I think it's a little less clear to me. Um, I think that Guy is clearly the least likable person. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it a little less likely that he would have actually murdered someone, even though he is yeah. a huge asshole. Um, there also is a little bit, little tiny bit of redemption in him if you find out the reason, which a lot of people, it's very difficult to find out why he's embezzling money, yeah, I which is did. that, yeah, his background is his family. He's a Jewish convert, um, and his grandparents uh, okay. were like basically persecuted, and so he's he's stealing money to give to Jewish families that are being um, uh, purged out of cities, basically. Man, way um, to make me feel terrible about my choices in the game, man. But he's <laughs> still Josh. an asshole, and yeah, if you no, think he, he is, killed him, <laughs> yeah, and well, then I don't, want, I don't want to feel bad about playing a video game. <laughs> But then, and then you have um, you have Hannah who has material interest potentially in doing it. She is a little suspicious in that she was actually spending time around the Rod House. Um, I think she's kind of enigmatic about whether or not she did it. And then you have Martin, where I think he obviously has a ton to lose. Uh, I personally feel like he probably would not have done it, but that's just. But again, there is no canonical thing, so. Yeah. It kind of all depends on how you go through it. Everyone was written as though they absolutely could have done it. Yeah. So it kind of yeah. comes down to really personal personal preferences. And I would never I would never canonically say this is the person who did it because that defeats the entire point of yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just I was just asking if Josh were playing, what who would Josh accuse? Yeah, it's so all. weird because I played it so many times, and I've, yeah. I've uh, you know, it, and of course, when you have meta knowledge, that changes it a yeah, lot because no, yeah, it's absolutely. it's it's really easy to say Ferenc, um, because he's so unlikable. And it's very easy to say Guy because he's so unlikable, um, but then when you know more meta context, then those choices become not so easy. It's kind of yeah, it's it, it's very cool how in. In my experience, anyway, maybe others will obviously have a different experience of playing it. But as you play through it, by the end, by the time you're in the second act, you're almost kind of leaning into the idea that oh, I am doing the reproduction of history to achieve an end, and where I'm explicitly, I've been primed and I've been told that there are influences and effects that will, will ripple out from my decision here. And we've seen it in Act One, and now we're being asked to do it again. So it almost is like okay, you had a trial run in Act One, now you know the stakes. Here's mm-hmm. these other figures, which are even more ambiguous in many ways. You know, what do you want to do here? Are you going to try and get to the truth, TM, or are you going to try and work out what would be best? And yeah, uh, yeah no, it's it's real. It's, it's very well executed. So thank you. But anyway, um, you know, enough gushing from me. I guess uh, we've we've been talking for a while now, so we should probably kind of wrap this up. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Josh. It's it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very um, much for having me again. I love being a guest. Yeah, no, thank well, you for coming on this communist podcast, as I think we were referred to last <laughs> yeah. time you dropped by. <laughs> we, we will, we will absolutely have you on again. Um, you know, to talk about your other work. Which, speaking of which, are there any like um, up and coming projects or similar that you're involved in that you'd like to to highlight to our audience? 
Uh, no, I mean, nothing nothing right now. I mean, I am still working on the Pillars of Eternity uh, tabletop role-playing game, nice. um, which has been, uh, was sidelined at the at the end of Pendiment because it was just too much. But we're making a, ver we also have a virtual tabletop uh, version of that, so you can play oh, cool. the, the game online. And it's actually a really robust implementation. Um, so if you play like with Foundry um, as a virtual tabletop, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, it still has a lot of work to go, but that is what I'm working on. Um, I'm helping out on other projects at Obsidian that are currently in development, but I have a while before I need to figure out the next thing that I'm going to direct, which is good because I don't know what I want to do. Because <laughs> now that I've done, I've done a, I made a D&D &D game, more more than a D&D &D game. I made many D&D &D games. I made a Fallout game and I made a historical game, which were the three games that in 1999 I wanted to make. So now I can do something else. We'll big see. budget shooter. Big budget shooter. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Finally, finally, finally made his masterpiece and can become, go off, get married, and become a master. Yeah. yeah. There we go. And uh, I, I look forward to you directing the next Call of Duty game, clearly. Like, that's the best you. direction. <laughs> well, you can pal around with Karl Marx. Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's funny you should say that because the um, uh, when I was doing research on, on the game, I watched an interview with Umberto Echo from about 10 years ago. Mm. And... Um, he wrote Name of the Rose when he was 48. Yeah. And it was his first novel. He had obviously written a lot of academic work prior to that. Um, but that was his first novel. And he said something like, yeah, I, was t I turned 48, and that's the age at which either you run away from life with a Cuban ballerina or you uh, write a novel. So I chose to write a novel. <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, I'm 47. Is that the decision that I have coming in the next year? I don't know if that's, uh, if I can do that. You'll get um, a letter in the mail, don't worry. Yeah. And right. like I said, look, if you wanna, you wanna come stay here in Switzerland, you're, you're a ballerina as welcome as well. Don't worry about it. Fantastic. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, um, that's it from us. We hope you all enjoyed this episode. Uh, play Pentiment, it's really good. And yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll catch we'll you all be, again next. We'll be time. back next week with more British things, which will be horrible and depressing. Wonderful. <laughs> Looking forward to it already. <laughs> all right. Bye from us all. Bye. Cheers, everyone. Bye.